A special thank you to Freyden for their incredibly generous contribution, which will go a long way in helping us right now. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is our full-time jobs now. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. When it comes to left media, there is no charity, only solidarity. This is Sam. This is Mo. And this is Southpaw. Today's episode of Sao Paul is a very important one. It also has a lot of historical significance. It's about Mo Nishida, a Japanese-American internment camp survivor and an unapologetic revolutionary. Due to the length of our conversation and not wanting to cut anything out, this will be our first two-part interview. So this is part one of my conversation with Mo Nishida. Hi, Mo. Greetings. So let's just start from the start. Where were you born? Okay, I was born in L.A. on August 11th, 6 p.m., 1936, at the Japanese hospital in Ball Heights on 1st and Fickett. And when was that? It was in uh, 1936, August 11th. I say 6 p.m. because, uh, you know, in your in the, in the cycles, uh, they ask you, actually ask you what time you were born, you know, your biorhythm. So I, 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 I like that I, idea is that uh, there are cycles and rhythms in, in your own body and mind. So. And then with your parents, were they also born in the U.S., in L.A., or did they immigrate here? They immigrated here. Actually, there are some of the last Issei. People born in Japan uh, that came over, you know, and in uh, in twenty four they had the uh, the Exclusion Act took effect, and there was no more immigration from Japan. So my dad came over as a fourteen year old on the last boat that crossed the international date line to be able to become come into the U.S. So then my mother was a child. She was just born. In fact, her her passport is a child in arms of her parent kind of thing. So they're, they're re- really young Issei's of that first generation, pre-war uh, generation. So, yeah, it's, they're, they're immigrants technically. But, you know, like my dad was uh, the restoration and the capitalist development in Japan, the educational development had risen education up to the eighth, earth, eighth grade, right, as compulsory education. And uh, so he had a compulsory education in Japan up to the eighth grade. And then uh, he came to this country, and at that time it was the eighth grade also here. And he went to the same high school that I went to. Uh, 
And so he had an eighth grade education here and in Japan. So I technically, you know, at that time, right, I think we could probably call him some kind of at least an educated young man, yeah. And do you know what their reasoning was for coming to the U.S. or what their parents' reasoning was, actually? Well, my father's side was, uh, his father was already here, Um was a lumberjack in the Seattle area. A Japanese lumberjack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, all of that uh, manual labor, they, they were all part of that, and the railroads and all that. But uh, uh, my grandfather, my, my dad's side, right, my, had caught the uh, American dream bug. So he was, uh, his, well, his story is, right, he's the third son. So in Japan up to that time, right, uh, that the primogeniture thing, right, so that the first son usually got most of the property. So, but uh, I, apparently my great-grandfather had uh, had enough land, so he split his land in two and gave it to his first two sons. So my grandfather was the third son, but nothing for him, so he boogied <laughs> and took off. And uh, stories about where he went, but it's, none of it is really documented or anything. But uh, he ended up in Seattle as a lumberjack. Then his brother dies without leaving an heir. So I guess the great-grandfather decides, well, you know, i got to take that land back. It ain't his no more, right? I give it to my third son. So they call my grandfather back from Japan. And he comes back, and they give him the land, and get him married, right? He has three kids. And he says, uh, fuck it, I'm leaving. You know, I, I, I ain't going for Japan no more, right? So he takes off. He goes back uh, to Seattle. Then he calls my grandmother, well, my great-grandmother, my, 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 or my, what the hell is it, my grandfather, he calls my my father and his mom to go to come to the U.S. and I guess my auntie got sick, so my grandmother elected to stay with the aunties and sent my father over here alone by himself. Right, fourteen-year-old kid crossing the Pacific, a last boat out of Japan, right? and uh, yeah, then he gets over here. The boat is delayed. And landing, so the father comes down from the right lumberjack up by Mount Rainier, misses him, takes a month to get to come back out to Seattle again. So my dad stays on that quarantine island in Seattle, right, for a month. And he he never spoke too much about it, except to state that his dad didn't make it when he when he got there. He made a 14-year-old kid up there all by himself in a foreign country. Don't speak no English, no nothing. Don't know what the hell's going on. And for people who don't know, what is the quarantine island? Well, it's like uh, Ellis Island in the East Coast, right? Where the European immigrants were, were put in and then held in quarantine. So if they got sick or something, and then they shipped them out. Well, then, then we have uh, Angel Island. Right in San Francisco, right, and in Seattle, there's another one. I forgot the name of it, but uh, they've got an island like that up there. So, if you 
you know, you don't quite make it, then you, you're stuck on that island until you get some clearance. So that's what happened with my, my dad. But uh, he got out. There's a, actually a lot of history of Japanese in the Seattle area, right? Right. It was just a popular port. Do you know if it was mostly because of the lumber? Lumber, fishery, canning, right? That stuff in the railroads. So, yeah, so there's a lot of work up there compared to, actually, L.A. was uh, was nothing, right? It was San Francisco and Seattle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, until after the earthquake, right? The big earthquake in San Francisco. Then everybody gets out of Dodge. It comes, right, spreads out, and a lot of it starts to build up in L.A. Those were just the two big ports at the time then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The major ports were Seattle, San Francisco. Then after the big San Francisco earthquake, that a lot of the lot of the stuff shifts down here to L.A. Mm-hmm. and sort of the Japanese population gets out of there too. People forget that L.A. used to be the desert, so L.A. didn't really populate until they figured out a way to get water into L.A. Yeah, that's that's the story, right? Yeah, and he's yeah, fourteen years old, so they want to send him to school, so he gets a job as a schoolboy. So you live for, live with white people, and you act as a the servant, right? <laughs> and you go to school. Okay. And so that's what he did for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, he went out and tried lum- lumberjacking with his dad. And and I, I guess they used to go fishing and stuff like that. My my great-grandfather and my, well, my, my grandfather and my father were fishermen. Mm. They loved to go fishing, right? They're outdoors people. So... That's why I think they fell in love, right, with with this land, and uh, and then uh, they decide that uh, they're going to test out uh, L.A. So my grandfather comes down here to L.A., gets settled in, and then uh, calls my dad. So my dad comes by ferry, right from Seattle to L.A., and he's on this boat with a whole bunch of young Filipino guys, right? This was before the war, so there wasn't all that big animosity. wasn't there yet, right? During that time, a lot of people just think about Chinese being in California, but during the early 1900s, it was a mix of Chinese, Japanese, and Filipino migrant workers. Yep, yep, yep. And also the Sikhs. Right. Mm. The South Asians, South Indians, the South Asian Indians, yeah, they're here too. Yeah, that's what we found out in the 60s, right? Found still Hindi or whatever they speak, right? Just uh, pure blood. They've been here already a couple generations. Shows how much segregation was, how deep it was. But yeah, it was uh, the trip. Yeah, it was uh, all of us from Asia. So most of the time, it's not as when they make those exclusion acts and anti 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 us acts, it ain't specific, right? It's usually Asian or from the Triangle, the Pacific Triangle, and stuff like that. So it includes all of us uh, from uh, from uh, the Asian subcontinent, India, you know, Bangladesh, those people through the Pacific Islands, right, mm-hmm. to East Asians, right, us Koreans, Japanese. That's why there's such a gap. And if they're still around now, they're these old timers. And then there's this gap where there's nobody in between. And then you have people who are a little bit younger than that because they weren't allowed to come for a while. Right, right. And so there's the disconnect then with the people who came later with the generation that was here previously. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, a lot of the history gets lost mm-hmm. in there too. Yeah, just uh, yeah, the Chinese Exclusion Act went in before 1900, right? I mean, scribing this, you know. But this, that's how tough they are. Right? They had their own little Chinatowns and shit, right? I mean, there's stories like in San Francisco that white people didn't go into Chinatown, right? They had their own. Used to be you call into Chinatown. And they'd have their own switchboard. So you had to go through the Chinatown switchboard to make a telephone call into Chinatown, yeah? So, yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> and that wasn't just because they wanted to be only around each other, but it was also as community defense. That's why it was so tight-knit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you read the history of uh, Chinese in, in the U.S., and especially in California, I mean— uh, you know, like here, yeah, they, they killed 19 people, right? Strung them up and shit like that. So, yeah, people are, Although, you know, they make a big thing about us. Uh, like, maybe it's the, the modern us trying to get into our history. So, it looked like oh, poor us, right? Goddamn Asians were getting picked on and shit like that. But, uh, nah, we fought back. Always have fought back, mm. you know? So, you know. All right, let me tell Can I diverge? Yeah. I'm going to tell you this story about the, the southern border. During Prohibition, right, well, the Chinese, after they were excluded to come into the U.S., right, still had to leave China because the stuff was so shitty there, right? Okay. So they're pouring into Mexico. So that all the border towns are loaded with Chinese communities, Chinatowns, all of them, right? And uh, I think it's San Luis, but uh, the Tongs, right, pretty much began to take control of that town. They were so strong. And uh, and who are the Tongs? Oh, those are the Chinese Tongs, mm-hmm. the family associations, right, those kind of stuff. Right? And uh, this is frontier times too, right? So, the, And the mafia is trying to get in, right? But get into the alcohol and all that other kind of trades, right? That the Tongs had control of in San Luis. So the mafia goes down there. So there's warfare going on between the Chinese Tongs and the mafia mm. down there. And they finally decide, hey, we can't go around killing each other because it's scaring the tourists off. <laughs> all the, the money was drying up, right? So they they they, they negotiated uh, a shootout. Said okay, so, so you send your best your best gun, and we'll send our best gun, and walk down right through the the the, the I imagine it would be the the old red light district, right? Can you imagine it? Just the picture in your mind, right? Just, this fucking gunman, right, coming from the west, right? Got his thing in. Here come the Chinese brother, right? <laughs> and I, I just imagine with all that shit, the uh, skull cap, the pigtail hanging out yeah. in the back, put a six gun on his side. Huh? And the Chinese brother blew that off your dude away, man. <laughs> so they took over for a hot minute, but the mafia went to Mexico and got bought the Mexican government off. So they sent the federales down there. So San Luis is the only town that doesn't have a Chinatown. Mm. They got wiped out there. But just go up to, you know, 20, 30 miles to the next town. 
shit, yeah, it's a Chinatown. We come all the way over here, right, to uh, Tijuana. You got a Chinatown, right? Everybody's got a Chinatown except San Luis, and that was the history why, right? There's no Chinatown. You got the federalities came down there and either run everybody off or killed everybody. So, yeah, <laughs> So then when you were growing up, was information about what was happening to Asian immigrants, Asian Americans, or even like sounds like Asians in south of the border in Mexico, was it all just like the Asian community was tight knit enough that information just got disseminated like that and just word traveled? Yeah, yeah. There was enough interaction. I mean, the people who told me that were Japanese people living in San Luis. Mm. Right? And that that was a big uh, border crossing point for so-called illegals, right? Our illegal people. That's another story, right? That the people would come up, right? Jump, bail out, wherever in Mexico, then head for the border. Then they get to a place like San Luis, right? Right on the border. Then they would hire out to Japanese farmers on the coast, uh, on the border, right there. And while they were there working and right, making a living and able to survive. Then they uh, they learned about the topography of wherever they wanted to go. So they studied a little English and stuff like that, spent a little time learning about the thing. So whenever they got on the bus and headed in to L.A., right, when the Border Patrol came up and questioned them, like, where are you from, right? Oh, I, I live down here on Bo- Boyle Avenue, right, between 2nd and 1st. Right? <laughs> yeah. Act like they knew what the hell was going on and get by. But... Uh, they had all of that shit worked out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about how important then for survival interactions and spreading information was back then. Whenever there was knowledge, it had to be spread quickly. So one of the strengths of survival for a minority group is their ability to communicate with each other. Yeah. 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 Very much so. I I think so. It's like uh, one of the things like Misako, uh, my wife is from Japan. When she came over here, one of the things that uh, she noticed that, uh, you know, that my interaction with other minority people, especially blacks, I grew up in a black neighborhood, right? So, yeah, everybody says hi, right? Smile, act like, you know, she said, you know them? <laughs> you know that person? <laughs> no, no, it's just a brother on the street, right? Mm-hmm. Or a sister on the street kind of stuff, right? And you make eye contact, you say hi. Right, and uh, I think that's 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 kind of the thing, right? Of course, that was a, the the big joke that we used to make in the sixties and the seventies about the movement, right? Said so Asians, two Asians walking towards each other on campus or at high school and stuff like that. What's the first thing they do? Start look, sky starts looking pretty, right? Or the ground starts looking interesting, but never looking at each other, and that's kind of an Asian thing. But we're not in Asia, mm. <laughs> you know. That so that was one of the things that that, that we we tried very much to to deal with, man. It's not, I mean, fuck shining each other on, right? That we need to, you know, acknowledge each other's presence, kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that we exist. Yeah, yeah, to each other. Yeah, <laughs> and especially back then because all the minorities were being excluded from the white neighborhoods, they all ended up living next to each other anyway. Anyway. So it was kind of different from right now, where it's so factioned off. It was much more forced interactions. Forced by geography, I mean. Yeah, not, nobody's right. making you. Right. 
but it's like, here, we're going to corral you all over here, right? Then, of course, there's going to be some kind of interaction, interchange, trading and exchanging of information, but also a little bit of solidarity growing from there. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, you, you, you. We all knew that we lived on the other side of the tracks, <laughs> and we all knew who lived on the other side, right? Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. I, it's whites and then everybody else. Yep, 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 yep. You were born not too far from where we're talking right now. Yeah, right. A couple miles. Yeah. Was that called Little Tokyo back then or? Yeah, yeah. There was a Little Tokyo. Then there's the overflow of Little Tokyo that was Boa Heights, right? And that, and the Japanese hospital was in Boa Heights. So, so what was growing up like then for you here? Well, I don't remember much uh, about before the war, except that, you know, I grew up with uh, non-Japanese friends, besides Japanese friends. How old were you when World War II started? Uh, six. Okay. Yeah. So what happened after the war started? Well, well okay, well, let's go back uh, to when the war started. I. My my folks, my my little sister had just been born, so there must have been four of us in my dad's uh, brand new car, uh, going fishing. And I remember my mother saying, listening to something on the radio, saying, "Uh oh, I think we better go home." My dad agreeing, making a U-turn, we go back to L.A., right? Go back to our house, and. So as soon as we hit the, you know, we got home, I took off running, go visit my friends, right? Chance to play with them and stuff like that. Then I, I smell the smoke and see the smoke coming up, right? Now, gee, what, what's going on? So we run over to my house, and goddammit, my mom's taking all the stuff Japanese, from Japan, piled it up in the backyard, and torch that sucker, right? And 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 what she torched was, you know, the Japanese have a custom on Boys' Day and Girls' Day. You put out these uh, dolls that represent the imperial family kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was a, a big thing, right? And goddamn it, my dolls are being <laughs> torched. <laughs> what the hell's going on, right? I tell my mom. <laughs> She just let me shut up and go away, right? <laughs> and but you know, checked around with the, my other friends, Japanese friends, and they, their mom doing the same thing, right? And that's what everybody did, right? We heard that anything tying you to Japan could get you in trouble, so that's what they did. So my mom took all my toys. Who did they hear that from? It couldn't have been from the news, right? The news isn't going to be alerting the Japanese people. Hey, burn your shit. We're coming for you. Well. Or Japanese Americans just saw the writing on the wall. So it was just instinct. That could be also, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I never really thought about it that much. Just that, uh, just common knowledge, right? That uh, something was going to happen, right? And that... Uh, People knew that uh, that that war war was brewing between Japan and the U.S. Right? They had already been fighting in China already, right? The Japanese sank that uh, that boat on the river there and all that. So there, 
there's already been a fighting, like with the Nazis right there. They're already getting it on, so. You say it's common knowledge, but even to this day, people are always thinking like, well, there's stuff happening, but surely they would never come after us. Or this is the U.S. We would never go after these people, right? So there is a lot of this kind of uh, blissful ignorance. Right, 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 right. Right? Denial, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it seemed like, especially with minority groups, they know better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your mom was torching all the stuff. Yeah, because everybody else was doing it. Was it to basically try to hide the fact that you all were Japanese or was it more like, hey, we're not tied to Japanese imperialism? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. My guess would be is that everybody else was doing it, so we better do it. Hmm. And, and it was about you know, not being, having those direct connections with Japan. Probably either or. If it's like they know you're Japanese, just say, hey, but we don't have any ties with imperialism. If they don't know, well, then it's harder to know because there's no proof either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you thinking at the time? Well, I wasn't thinking anything. I mean, that I recalled, right, as a kid, because the next thing that I remember is we're evacuating, right? And uh, we're lining up in front of our church. Mm -hmm. And... All our belongings, what they allowed us to take, right, was one suitcase per person, right, were lined up in front of the church, and the soldier is coming along giving us numbers, family numbers. So it wasn't that long after the war broke out and y'all were burning any signs of allegiance to Japan, the government came and rounded y'all up. Yeah, February, March, something like that. One day you were going to school. The next day, you were lining up at church, and they were giving you numbers. Actually, I don't. I don't remember uh, American school. Yeah, I, I remember Japanese school. So you were going to Japanese school here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At uh, the Senshin Buddhist Church, it's, it's right there, right in the neighborhood. It's still there. And then, where'd they take you? Santa Anita. Actually, my dad, you know, had that car. So those of us who had vehicles, families that had vehicles. Right, we're told to get in the vehicles with all our stuff, and then we drove by caravan to Santa Anita, and then there they took the cars away from us and sold it. Right. Mm. So when you saw soldiers, they weren't like soldiers just wearing uniforms; they were also armed. Oh yeah, they were there <laughs> to fuck you up. Yeah, <laughs> they weren't there to protect us. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, but you know, as kids. One of the things I have, uh, remember, I have is like they used to have the guard towers. One of the guard towers was close to this place where we used to go gather polywogs at, right? So, you know, kids like to grow shit, right? So we'd grow in polywogs at the frogs and stuff like that. But uh, I remember we used to go out there and beg and pitch pen, get pennies pitched to us from the soldiers in the guard towers, right? So I, I still remember that. Those guys were, you know, particularly mean or anything like that. Uh, that that was a kind of interesting contrast. But I was at uh, Santa Anita, directly saw the so-called Santa Anita riots, right? And this was, uh, they had most of the people in the camp. So this is an internment camp. Yeah, this is Santa Anita Racetrack. That was the first, they call it the assembly center. 
So it was the initial place where they brought us together from all over Southern California, all over L.A. So it's kind of makeshift at first where they just needed to corral you all somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So they had us, uh, you know, they had put up these uh, this housing on the parking lot, but then they also had housing in the old stalls. And some of the people who were in those, they complained like hell, right? Stunk like shit. Yeah, yeah you, you kicked a little lumpy part of the paint job, that big turd underneath there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, stinky. It doesn't sound that different from what's happening near the border where they have all those camps for all the immigrants that ISIS come after. Yep, 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 yep. And it's all makeshift. They didn't really even plan it out that well. So they're just like, we're going to have to put something together and y'all are staying there now. Yep, yep. You're going to have to make do with that. Yeah. Okay. So that was the same the same philosophy. That's why it's, you know, heartwarming that uh, that elements of the Japanese community are out there protesting all that, yeah, especially the separation of children from their parents and putting parents in the, you know, children in the camps and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this was just a temporary place then, Santa Anita? Yeah. From there, uh, they were shipped to the, the the main concentration camps. But you said there was a riot there? Yeah, yeah. The, the, what they did was they had hired, not hired, I don't know how they did it, but they most of the people were working on camouflaging and they had these guards and rumor was that they were supposed to be Koreans. Mm. And that was the way they split us, right? Pitting Asians against each other. Yeah. But on top of that, you had the administration constantly doing surprise inspections on the barracks where y'all lived, doing search and seizures. But then it ended up being licensed and cover for guards to steal personal items from detained Japanese Americans. Right. Or this one guy was stealing also. He was breaking into the houses where everybody worked and stealing shit. And coming out, this is the story, okay, I don't know for sure, but that uh, people greeted the guy and he tipped his hat and he had shit in his hat. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) And shit fell fell out. The stuff he had stolen. He was exposed, right? So people started yelling, "Dorobo, right, thief!" And he started. They started chasing him. This thing turns into a major riot, right? People are saying, "What the hell? They're not even going to safeguard us, and we're working camouflage their camp." So they bring in the national guard. To clarify for listeners, they were having y'all make camouflage netting for the war effort. Yeah, yeah. And y'all were working for a private contractor. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, it blows up into a, a, a riot situation where they call the National Guard in. They come in with the armed guards, machine guns, and all of that stuff. Uh, and I remember I'd hooked up with my mother again by then. And I saw we saw this guy running and, and, and jumping onto this garbage truck, right, thinking that they were going to take care of him. Shit, hey, fuck. People talking about Dorobo, you know, thief and shit like that. So they start beating his ass with the garbage can, right? <laughs> so he jumps off and starts running some more. And I, that's when he starts running to the administrative area, I think. But so anyhow, they panic, call the National Guard in, and they they come in with these, you know, big trucks, these soldiers. And I, my mom, and I, she must have had my 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 little sister, right? My little sister was born. And uh, 41, so, you know, she's still a 
babe in arms. And this young guy, this young guy, white guy, right, sitting on top of this machine, or this big truck with the machine gun aimed directly at us. Mm. Right? My mother has a nervous breakdown mm. right? and is separated from me for the duration of the time before we go out, we, we get sent to the concentration camp. Then on the way out to camp, there's this incident that's stuck in my mind that I tell people about, right? It's like uh, we're, we're traveling in a train where all the windows are pulled, right? We're not allowed to look outside where we're going or anything. They don't want you all to know where you're going. They're, yeah, they don't want us to know in case your spies amongst us will tell the Japanese government or whatever, right? Some shit, whatever. Or we might see some security shit. They didn't trust y'all, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were Japs. Uh, and we get out there in the middle of the desert. We're out. Later on, I, I figure it's the salt, Great Salt Lake. We're in a real secluded section of the Salt Lake where the train tracks go by, and it stops. And I guess they're going to let us out a little bit, air it out a little bit. And so as soon as the doors open, us, us little guys are gone, right? Out that door, running towards the water. And the people are going fucking crazy, right? Our people, right? Yeah, telling us to come back and what the hell are you doing? And, you know, all that kind of shit. And we were wondering, well, fuck it. We'll go, go out and have a good get into the water, right? Splashing around, all that salt and real interesting stuff. And we get back, and we get our ears boxed, right? And yelled at and all that kind of stuff. What the hell are people going crazy like that for? Because right? you guys are just children. You don't know the severity of the situation where the parents are very much aware. And they were basically given no warning and they only got to pack one bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then got shipped off to the racetracks, yeah. had the camouflage, had a riot. Your mom had a nervous breakdown because basically the ridiculousness of this man with a machine gun pointing his gun at your mom and your sister, a baby at the time. Yeah, and me, yeah. And then next thing you know, you're then shipped off on a train where all the windows are covered. I mean, I'm sure what was going through the parents' mind is this is very similar to what they were hearing was happening to the Jews in Germany. So the ridiculousness is this juxtaposition where they're going off to fight the Nazis, but they're doing very similar tactics here. And the people here, they didn't know if they were going to go get killed or not. And nobody was trying to put them at ease to say, hey, that's not what we're going to do. In fact, they're using a lot of the same tactics. Then it's like, well, if you're scared, you're scared, but we don't mind using a lot of the same tactics. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what, what it was. It wasn't until I, you know, I got older. Then I started to talk to people about, you know, what happened. And that's what the, the, they told me, right? It was that they were scared. So they didn't know what the hell was going to happen to you. You guys running off like that? The, they could leave you out there, die. They could shoot your ass, right? Whatever, right? So, so no, no wonder the people just freaked out, right? For the adults, it was much more traumatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and the, what they saw was, you know, they were never told anything, so shit, yeah. Yeah. Was that just a temporary pit stop for the train and then... We go to Colorado, yeah. And in Colorado, it was like a camp that was much more prepared then for a longer term? Yeah, well, it was a permanent camp. 
from there we stayed for uh, three, three and a half years. For people who aren't familiar with this time period, you stayed temporarily at the makeshift internment camp in Santa Anita, and then y'all went over to Colorado, and then you spent three and a half more years over there. Yeah, yeah. Y'all were Americans, so this wasn't something that happened to Americans for just a couple of weeks or a couple of months. This was years. You're just describing the very beginning of this journey. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the camp? Amachi. Amachi, or they call it Granada. And what was it like? What did it look like? Well, like uh, if you've seen uh, uh, a military base, it was like that. There was, a, you know, everybody organized in blocks. There were probably about 10 barracks per block with a mess hall, a washroom, bathroom kind of combination, and a kitchen. And uh, your life revolved around that. What I'm imagining is, you know the movie The Great Escape? That kind of military compound that the, the Americans and the British were housed in? Except these are families. Okay, so these weren't trained soldiers who were trained to handle situations like these. Right. These were just civilians. These were just families and kids. Yeah, trying to, trying to survive. And was your mom with you at this time? Yeah, mom rejoined us. So there were also moments where you were separated from your family. Yeah, yeah. In and out, where you were together, you were apart, you were together. Yeah. But uh, one of the saving graces, at least for myself, was that my mom's came from an extended family of uh, eight, uh, 10 children, eight survived. And, you know, she was taken care of by my, my extended family side, so like I had older brothers and sisters that uh, were in the same block. So we, close by, so I, uh, there was a support system for me as a kid. So I was really fortunate in that sense, in a place where it was just us. It's all you knew also. Yeah, yeah. You've never been that age somewhere else. No. You were that age only in a concentration camp. Yep, yep. That's, I, that's, that's my way I describe myself, a survival of an American concentration camp. But uh, yeah, I, kids will find fun and life anywhere. Mm-hmm. Even in a goddamn dump, right? Yeah. Like those kids in the that big dump in outside of Manila in the Philippines, right? You grow up your whole life in a goddamn big dump, right? But you survive. So it's two different experiences then, one for the adults and one for the kids. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the people that I know will go into denial about this time. Do you think afterwards they had a lot of post-traumatic stress? Oh, yeah, yeah. It comes out. You know, after the war, when, when, when the community was fighting, led by our left young people, right, was fighting for uh, reparations, right, it comes out, right? People just broke down. It just it was too bad that we didn't really thoroughly use that opportunity, to, right, so people could express themselves and purge and get some kind of relief, right? But yeah, shit, that's just about everybody broke down when they finally started fighting that they would be heard by somebody of importance, right? Yeah, that, 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 yeah quick, yeah, Congress, congressional something on incarceration. But uh, yeah, they had a whole, whole hearing on that. It was kind of a joke, 
right? But still, at least some of the people got a chance to speak their minds, right? So, yeah, I had a chance. To, so I spoke my mind. Of course, that was kind of a bad time of, of, of my my thing, right? I, 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 when I was in J-Town, I, 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 I was a drug addict. This was later in life. Yeah, yeah, after the movement and stuff like that. But I, they had this uh, congressional hearings. So this was years after the internment camps? It was in the 60s and the 70s. So while you all were in those camps, was there ever a feeling like any day now we'll be out? No. There was no hope? No. We just figured we we're going to be in there, you know. And and the older people, I think, like my dad and them, just figured that they just had to wait it out, right? And one way or another, it's going to end. So it sounds like y'all had given up on the idea that this was all some big mistake. The U.S. would come to their senses and realize they were doing something wrong and let you all out. But rather, y'all were in there for the long term and they weren't going to let you out until the war was finally over and not one day before then. Yeah, yeah. So what happened to your dad? What was he up to? He was a cook and a mechanic. <laughs> so he was a mechanic first, but he's talking about when they started the draft, right, that how some of the some of his friends that, that, that you work with, right, uh, had to uh, figure out ways to dodge the draft, right? One was a drink show you, right? The, the bug juice that we use, right, for everything. Well, you drink a whole bunch of that, your blood pressure goes off the charts, right? So even within these camps, people were getting drafted? Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. not only were you imprisoned, but you also had to serve. Yeah, yeah. That's fucked up. Well, and then, then you know, the, uh, the, the accommodationists, right, the JACL, Japanese American Citizens League, they promoted that, that so to, pro to prove our loyalty. Right. So to prove your loyalty that you're Americans, you're going to go serve your country, except you're not Americans and that's why you're imprisoned. Right. And typical of a real like military police camp where they're like guards with guns and high towers and all that typical stuff. Yep. 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 Barbed wire. Yeah. Barbed wire. Guns pointed in, not out. Y'all were living under military rule. Yep. And then they had the facade, right, of uh, democracy. Yeah, the, the camp had a uh, supposedly uh, under the War Relocation Authority, right? Uh, they had uh, a camp governance, which was the JCL appointed usually, right? But the blocks, right, to control the blocks. They had to have Japanese-speaking people. So there's just a break there from that. But to show that the English-speaking people were in command, right? so the community was split along those kind of lines. So there was a, yeah, they did a pretty good number on us. So they kind of used a little bit of divide-and-conquer tactic? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they, they, they had those studies, right? We were probably one of the most studied victims, right, of oppression in, a, in this country's history, right? I mean, they a whole, they had, they hired uh, UC Berkeley, uh -huh. and uh, they had, they had a whole interviews, what you call it, uh, Chrysanthemum and the Sword, right? It's a famous story 
thing about how the psychology of us going into camp and shit like that, how that was used to see, to perfect how they were going to occupy Japan after the war and all. So they were studying y'all during the process also. Yeah. And you still had to serve in the military. Yep. <laughs> but see, there's a lot of denial about how much consciousness we had. But I was aware. I mean, I remember when they started the draft. Right? They shut the camp down. People so much people were so pissed off, right? And so they had a curfew. So I remember sneaking out into the curfew and fucking with these guards and shit like that. They were patrolling the camp stuff, you know? Uh, yeah, and then after the draft started, then they sent them guys out and then overseas. And then it seemed like no sooner did they start drafting them than the the coffins start coming back. Oh God! Yeah, you know, and uh, they uh, they closed the school so that we could go out for a military burial of, of the first batch that came back from Italy or North Africa, I guess. And I mean, they flew this white guy out from Washington, right? The, the dumb shit, right? Sits up there and talk about yeah. The, the the boys fighting for freedom and democracy and all that shit, right? For who? Not for you all. Thank you, yeah. And, you know, here here we are, maybe first, second grade, maybe third grade. We knew that shit already, man. We just me and the, the two guys that, that you know, my, my homies, right? I said, fuck this guy, right? Does he think he is? And I remember that distinctly, you know, and you know, we were little kids yet. But we were aware. So there were lots of different camps, but was there some unifying body that ran them all? WRA sponsored JCL maintained kind of structure. That that that's what I think was. So there was a government sponsored Japanese league that was allowed to govern y'all. Yeah. So it sounds just kind of like a puppet kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But de definitely, if you study uh, Native history, right, the the reservations, that's the kind of same kind of shit. Yeah. I mean, they've done that through Latin America, South Korea. Everywhere. Do you know how many camps there were or a ballpark? Yeah. There were 10 WI, War Relocation Authority sponsored camps. There were 10 of those. And about 15 or 20 uh Department of Justice camps. All the WRA camps were big ones because they, they weren't selective in terms of who they rounded up and put into those. The Department of Justice stuff, they had reasons for going after. So they were, it wasn't as big. So was there also a prison camp for those who protested or resisted against the draft or complained or didn't want to fill out the loyalty questionnaire or maybe they didn't speak enough English to fill it out so they couldn't fill it out and the cruel injustice of that questionnaire was that even if you did fill out the loyalty questionnaire and say you were loyal you were still going to be imprisoned anyway so there was no point in filling it out other than to avoid getting into further trouble so for these folks what happened to them? Yeah, yeah they had a special capital Tuli Lake. What kind of questions were in the loyalty oath questionnaire? Questions like, 
where you serve in the army, right, overseas, stuff like that. Or do you forswear any allegiance to the emperor? And a lot of these guys would just say, oh, fuck, we ain't never had no allegiance to no emperor. What the hell kind of sh- Why should we answer that? So they, a lot of them didn't. So even as a kid, you said you recognized all of this was bullshit, you know, proving your loyalty, fighting for a country that just imprisoned you, all that. Do you think there was another side of it where people were so afraid then that as soon as they were out of there, they wanted to assimilate as quickly as possible so that this could never happen to them again? We're going to be good American citizens now. Yeah, in fact, they were, they were real clear about that, right? The WRA message to us was that when you get out, don't hang out with other Japanese. Ah. Don't speak Japanese. Don't eat Japanese food, right? In other words, you know, cultural suicide. And then their their whole, whole plan, they didn't get it to work, but their plan was to send the Japanese people to every little town and city in the whole United States. Right? And they said, in one generation, there will be no more Japanese problem. Yeah. Quotes, Japanese problem. Right? Fuck! What problem, right? They got the problem, not us. But well, you can see what they were trying to do is just uh, assimilate us, get us everybody into marriage, and we're gone. Well, that's a big motivator to assimilate to white America. It's kind of like assimilate, do cultural suicide, or else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rush, you're always going to have a problem. Yeah, and uh, and the problem is the U.S. government. Yeah, well, it's just attitudes of white people, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's what they promoted. So even today, guys, people I grew up with uh, are very uncomfortable when they're with in a crowd of Japanese people and shit like that, right? Fear. But yeah, and most of us don't speak Japanese. Mm. I was a Japanese school, and I hated it. Yeah, when when I think back, I thought, shit, man, I should have learned something. <laughs> yeah. Well, they made you all hate the Japanese. They probably constantly use this American-style soft propaganda, soft brainwashing, right? That's a way they kind of virtue signal where, like, these countries, they do this hard propaganda, this hard brainwashing. We do it much more subtly, you know? But probably in the camps, it probably wasn't even that subtle. It was probably much more explicit. You saw it. Uh, the, the soldiers there, uh, the guns. Yeah. There's no mistaking what was going on. Yeah, yeah. That's like even today, like at the Manzanar pilgrimage that we have. I mean, they they got into this thing where Smokey the Bear's crew, right, packs weapons down. Some of them, and uh, they started to bring that on into our, our Manzanar pilgrimage ceremonies, having these guys walk around with guns on the thing, and yeah, that's. I object, you know, I, and, 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 and try to raise some hell around that and raise some consciousness, right? That we don't need guns employed by federal, uh, used by federal, worn by federal employees running around at our ceremonies where we commemorating our people and what the hell took place here, right? What is uh, Smokey the Bear? Oh, that's uh, National Park people. Okay. Well, you know, Smokey the Bear traditionally never had a weapon uh, until fairly recently, right? And uh, 
now they had now some of them pack pack guns and some of them act stupid some of them don't but you know it's just the fact that, that there's these weapons there in a nonviolent and a peaceful thing that we're doing trying to honor our ancestors honor the land right honor the so that shit like this won't never happen again and these suckers walking around with guns you know i i realize that yeah the man has got to show his muscle yeah okay fine but not around our ceremonies right so y'all are trying to have this ceremony and these national park people the smoky the bears are flexing their muscle making sure you see them but i'm sure especially for these people a lot of them who probably suffer from generational trauma get scared when they see armed government people around their ceremony i'm sure it triggers a lot of trauma because being surrounded by armed us agents is what happened at the internment camps yeah and you know our thing is uh, my thing is in the parking lot or on the periphery out where we can't see them fine but you're all going to scare people yeah and, and 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 there's a lot of shit that's gone on since then that where that PTSD has screwed a lot of people if you don't know what the hell they're going to do right mm. so it's escalating also yeah so i i i you know i just uh yeah i don't have any any kind of a tolerance of that stuff uh, yeah i but sometimes I think maybe I'm the only one. I I don't think I'm the only one, but you know, most of the people just dummy up, figure they can't do nothing about it. But you know, in my opinion, in the free and equal society we want to build, right, everybody got a right to speak their mind. Right? You ain't got a right to lay no trip on nobody, but you could speak your mind. Could ask any question you want. Well, whether they answer it or not is, yeah, that's all power relationships and what they really you know what their intent is but we have a right to speak and we have a right to ask questions right and uh yeah i don't care I'm a, i don't care what they say i'm a free and equal individual right were you always outspoken even back i guess back in the camp when you were a child or did this develop after the camp well uh, the way I, I, I the way I understand my childhood and how I describe myself is that I was a one of those little inquisitive mischievous suckers. So I was always into shit all the time. So yeah. You know, so I, I guess when I was a kid, I'd be asking questions a lot. Uh, as I grew older, you know, I demanded. You know, I began to demand transparency and the right to speak. Right? It sounds like at the time you weren't aware how bad it was, but maybe as an early adult, did you realize or come to think about that time? Like maybe it did mess me up. Maybe it did traumatize me and I just didn't realize it back then. Yeah, yeah, very definitely. I know it did. Being raised in prison probably is not good for the mind. Yeah, that's right. Even if you was a kid, right? I mean, it's still got to bear down on you. I, I I like this description that uh, Jim Matsuoka, uh, General Jim Matsuoka, made in uh, the first pilgrimage in '69 to Manzanar. But he talked about 
They're closing the camps down. And everybody leaving camp. But not not all of our part, mm. right? We left our souls in camp. And I, I think that that's a good description of what happened with us, that we forgot what it meant to be a, a human being, right? Speak up when there's bad shit going on and, you know, not fearing. Well, you still see that with indigenous people who live on reservations. They're still living with that trauma because it's not normal to live in these type of like government created siloed prisons, really, right? Now you could kind of come in and out, but it's still not normal. Yeah, it's it's the coercion part is 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 the not normal part. I think that uh, it's okay for us to freely yeah come together if we want to. Yeah, 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 exactly. If not, they can't. They shouldn't be able to hold us. For the history of this country up until the sixties, right, and the seventies, that it became okay for us to be able to choose what we wanted, right? Before that, we never had no choice. They told us what we were, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Manzanar for people who don't know what that is? Okay, Manzanar is uh, a concentration camp in uh, Eastern California. It's about uh, 200 miles from L.A., due north, on the way to uh, Lake Tahoe, uh, most of the people that ended up there came from uh, Southern California, but also from different parts of uh, California. Uh, it's one of the first camps, and uh, it, it's closest to the largest concentration of Japanese, right, on the mainland. That's why it's probably the most famous. But, uh, and you know, it's... Uh, after the camps closed down, there was this Buddhist priest. I forgot what his name was, Maeda or Maeno. But he was going up there. After the camps closed down, and uh, every year, right, to commemorate the people, to honor the people that died there. And in '68. After the emergence of the Black Power movement, of that concept, the Asian movement, which was mostly Japanese at that time, began to talk about what what was this, what was the significance to us of that concept, and we said, uh, "Well, we liked it, right? The fact that uh, all the negative shit that they put on us, we're going to turn that into a positive." that we're going to identify with it and and take it and run with it and make our own definition of it. Right? Before, right, yellow meant there was a color of chicken shit, right? treacherous, lying, deceiving, blah, 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 all that negativity to it. So we said, cool, that's us, right? We're okay. <laughs> we're okay with that. But there's more than just that, yeah? that we are proud independent, right, and, and self-determining, and and, and, and and support all oppressed people in this world, right? So it's a reclaiming. Yeah, reclaiming. So the yellow became a, 
a, a strong color of identity for us, right? Uh, just like that yellow peril, right? That has all this negative connotation in American history. That was us. We were the yellow peril, right? So, you know, it's like probably a lot of our, the, 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 the Vietnamese comrades or people won't, won't understand that there, there are a whole lot of us here, right, during the Vietnam War that identified with the Viet Cong. Well, call ourselves North American Viet Cong, right? That uh, we supported the, the the liberation forces, right? Or they wanted to kick U.S. imperialism out. We knew how 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 the U.S. had manipulated all of that when it should have been, you know, a plebiscite to see which way the people wanted to go. There was no need for those civil war, right? The U.S. created that situation. So for Black Americans here, they've lived through it here in the U.S. So the Viet Cong were sympathetic. And for you who lived through these concentration camps, having lived through it yourself, you also were like, I see what you, you suckers, as you say, right? What you did to me here in the U.S., I see you're doing it over there to them. That's right. That's right. So we saw that, right? So contempt. Then we saw the backwash, right? The GIs coming home, looking at Asian women and just disrespecting them and stuff like that. All that kind of crap going down. Nah, man, we we ain't going for none of that stuff, you know. So that's why, you know, when the when when the Kong run Chuck out, right? Then the wounded knee happened, right? Seventy three. That uh, we said that the war had come home. That uh, the, the, the 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 native peoples were standing up. And that uh, all the weapons that they used in Vietnam were being used on Indian people here. So, can you tell us about that? What is that? Yeah, well, Wounded Knee is where the uh, the last major battle between the U.S. government, U.S. cavalry, and Native peoples took place, and it was during the times when the, a time when the, there was a religious movement in the Native community. Called us the, the uh, well, there was a it was a religious movement of 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 trying to bring back the old way of life, and uh, of course the white man they didn't like anything where native people got together with any kind of independent thinking. So you're taking us back to the original Wounded Knee massacre, 1890. They entrapped right Chief Bigfoot. Up at the creek, right, Wounded Knee Creek, and they had them surrounded. So they did, you know, they had Gatling guns and everything. So they, they didn't have to kill. They didn't hardly any warriors with them either, right? Yeah. So they didn't have to do what they did, right? And they just machine gunned them, right? Three hundred people killed, men, women, children, everything. They dug a big pit, put all the bodies in there. Yeah. Then they had the nerve to put a Christian church on that sucker and a trading post. Right? And then, so then at that time, right, the U.S. government had this policy, just like overseas, right, where they were manipulating everybody. So they had all the reservations had these uh, half breeds, right, people that were uh, open to the white man. And they played them off against the full bloods. So you're making a through line from what happened in the original Wounded Knee Massacre 
to what you were involved in in 1973, which was the Wounded Knee Occupation. Right. And so this guy that ran the the, the reservation up there. The tribal leader. Right. Had a, a reign of terror going on. He's killing people and stuff like that. Right. And getting away with this. So the elders there called the Milwaukee AIM, right? American Indian Movement people, and asked them, come on down. And this uh, AIM was urban Indians, right? Indians moved off the reservation into the towns, right? And so they, they followed the Panthers. They're feeding people, taking care of their people, and stuff like that. But they didn't know anything about being Indian. They just knew they were Indian, right? And so on the rest, John Fools Crow and uh, Henry Crow Dog, right, had two elders, right, and uh, some of the traditional elders got together and said, they sent word out to these guys, um, <coughs> come and help us, right? We have these guys shooting and killing us, and we can't do it. Nobody's going to, nobody's helping us. No F FBI, you know, in fact, they're all there against us. So come and help us, and we'll teach you the ceremonies. And agreed to that, so they went in, and then then they planned out. They took over this desecration of their of of the people that died there, right? You know, Christian church and all this kind of stuff, okay. right? So that's what you meant by the war came home, and a lot of the tactics that the U.S. was using in Vietnam taking away a country's sovereignty to decide how to run their own country and how to reclaim their own land. We were doing the same thing here to the indigenous people all over again, not giving them self-determination and also aiming those same weapons that we were aiming at the Viet Cong towards American citizens, really. One that the U.S. already had an atrocious history with. So the parallel here is with AIM, you have these young descendants going back to try to reclaim their land and also learn about their history and their ceremonies. And you have the U.S. government trying to block them. Yeah, yeah. So they, they took over Wounded Knee. They, they ran out the whites out. They didn't kill them or nothing. They just ran them out, right, and occupied that land. And then the government came in there, right, FBI, talking about surrender. Uh, <clears throat> leave. Right. Give them the finger, right? Just tell them, fuck you, right? So they took it over. Then AIM put out an international call. Come to Wounded Knee and support us. So now this is like a convergence of stuff where you have 1890, you had the original Wounded Knee. Then you have Vietnam War, which is similar to that. And then at the end of this war, we're back at Wounded Knee again, where they're reclaiming their past, reclaiming their land, reclaiming their heritage, and then the government is coming in and saying, nope, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And they're asking for help. Yeah. And internationally, people respond. So here in LA, we put an Asian contingent of about 20, 30 people and about half a dozen cars at least that we drive up to Wounded Knee. Yeah, I was really fortunate yeah, being part of that. But to go there and just see, and then, like I was sharing with you right, that, that Sunday, right, that I saw my grandma yeah. at one of the villages, right, that we walked through, right? I thought, dang, man. So I know we were related, 
I knew why I was there. Yeah. There's this kind of visual resemblance between East Asians and native folk here. Yep. 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 It's unmistakable, especially as they get older. <laughs> yep. Get, get brown and wrinkly. Yeah. yeah. We all look the same. <laughs> and then what happened with all that? We stayed up there about a week and uh, trying to get our supplies in. Was there a lot of radicals there then? It wasn't just indigenous people, but also like there was an Asian contingent. Was there like black power movement there too? Yep, 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 yep. Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, uh, so, and whites. So it was, a, it was a beautiful thing, you know? And that's where we learned that in the, in the native uh, uh, mythology or the native uh, origin stories, right? That when the, the four colors of man, when they talk about the four colors of man, is that white, black, red, and yellow. Okay, and that's the four directions. When those four directions come together, then we have a healing, right? A unification takes place. And that... Uh, that that's a positive thing because that means that uh, the hoop of the nation is healing, right? That that the that that healing is beginning now, and we're going to have we'll end all this oppression, that kind of stuff. That's the way I interpret it, anyway. Okay, but yeah, it's a a beautiful thing. So you've seen it where you saw America within its own borders go after Americans, right? With the Japanese. Then you saw them coming after Native people over in Wounded Knee again. And then you saw them coming after Black Power Movement. And then now we're seeing it again where ICE is coming after immigrants and separating them from their children and all this stuff. When you once told me when I first talked to you that we got to be ready when these suckers come after us again, you're speaking from experience because you've seen it so many times. So it's not even like a spin where you have a different interpretation. It's more like you know shit that the rest of us don't know about, and you've lived through shit that the rest of us haven't lived through. So you're speaking from knowledge and experience and from facts, facts that most of us aren't aware of. Although I think if we had a clear, open discussion, I think we would see where people think that they haven't experienced this stuff, right? That we would begin to peel back the propaganda and at the base, you begin to see all of that. I mean, I mean, that, that's why a lot of us uh, who've gone through all of this, right? It's like a lot of the people coming out to this country now are refugees of uh, political refugees who have had to leave their mother countries because the the left, the communists, took over. Right. And my 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 thinking is that at least for the majority of people, the poor and oppressed people of those countries, that they probably gain by that. Okay, uh, uh, so a lot of people didn't, right? Because they allied themselves with the wrong people, <laughs> the U.S. Right? Who in the end will sell you out anyhow? If you're people of color, I don't give a shit. They just use you, right? So that's been my experience. So that's what I feel real confident of talking to people who may have right, rightist kind of tendencies, 
But if you stay here long enough, they'll teach you. <laughs> Not even within the U.S. borders, as far as U.S. treatment or American treatment of people of color. But when have they ever done right to people of color outside of the borders also? When have we ever done a good, a solid for people of color in the world? Look at our foreign policy. When have we gone and made people's lives better? Oh, we're going to invade and make your lives better. We're going to interfere and make the lives of these people of color better. We don't do that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they have these, uh, to bullshit everybody, right? They come up with these grandiose statements. It's like uh, Afghanistan. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first propaganda that came out, but that was about, oh, we're going to go in there and, 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 and give women their rights, their full rights. Right? I mean, in a Muslim country, you could make a statement like that and uh, think you're going to back it up and you're going to win allies over there. And who do they ally with? Most reactionary assholes around, right? Yeah. These guys promise everything and give you nothing. The salesmanship. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, They think everything uh, can be solved by propaganda right so that's why it's, it's treacherous it's so all-pervading that's why I, you know i have every confidence in the world that uh, no matter how right-wing you are if you are forced to become a worker and have to gunsel have to fight for your job and for a living you get your head straight <laughs> you won't have any illusions about who they are and what they represent. Yeah, we just all live in this collective denial, so it takes us a while to unpack yeah, yeah. and think about these things, but I think people don't want to because it's uncomfortable, right? When you hit them with these truths about what's happened in this country, they'd rather ignore it and pretend they didn't hear you, even though it's verifiable facts, they don't want to know because then they'll have to unpack their own shit. So that's happened in the world, that's happened in the US, that's happened historically, then what has happened to me personally has some of this affected me personally? Then you got to deal with your own shit. And it's like, I think maybe that's ultimately why people don't want to think about it because all of that leads to you got to think about yourself and what you've been through and maybe people aren't ready for that, right? Yeah, then you got to start making some decisions. But, uh, you know, that's okay because uh, that's a survival technique. So, you know, ultimately what we're talking about, right, it's PTSD, so we're talking about mental health. And in order for you to be healthy, you have to be free, right? So if you can't be free, then by definition you ain't healthy, right? So it, it, it comes out in the wash, right? You will, you know, you're going to have, at some point in time and space, you're going to have to look at that fork in the road. Can you keep bullshitting yourself that everything's okay? <laughs> or do you have to be able to start standing up? I mean, it's, so that was that was my thing, right? Back in the 60s, right? Early 60s, when, you know, the, the civil rights movement was, uh, was uh, getting stronger and stronger. And I had to ask myself, right? What side am I on? And, you know, my friends, well, you know, my sisters and brothers were black sisters and brothers I grew up with were just, just telling me, man, look in the mirror, sucker. You ain't white. <laughs> huh? Go look at your own community and see what's going on. Yeah. Huh? And then you go and look, 
know, you find out all your leaders have been bullshitting you, right? And lying to you about, we take care of our own, yeah, we help out, blah, 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 blah. And shit, like a community is riddled with these fucking problems, right? That everybody's trying to deal in their own family. We ain't got the resources. No family has resources to deal with this all by themselves, right? We can only deal with it as a community. So, yeah, so, yeah. Sooner or later, the shit happens, right? The light goes on. So what happened then at uh, Wounded Knee when y'all came together? Yeah, the FBI just kind of beat us up pretty good. Uh, one recollection I have is us going uh, 100 miles an hour on a dirt road on the reservation, right, back road, getting over, trying to get away from the FBI chasing <laughs> us, right? And I, fuck, I, and I'm thinking to myself, fuck, I'm going to die out here, you know? <laughs> But uh, I didn't. But yeah, yeah. So we had to, we, after they broke up our column, we were trying to break the blockade of Wounded Knee, right? Take supplies in. We had to regroup. And then some of us were called back home and some people stayed. And uh, we came back. And the people who stayed, you know, had to declare why they wanted to stay. And Three people said they were they were going to stay, and they did. And basically, they said that they didn't have anything to go back to, and that uh, uh, that this represented the future for them of resistance and standing up. So yeah. So then, tell me about right after the camps were over. Was it just like one day? It's like it's over. Y'all are free to go. The the end of the war is real interesting because. Uh, like me and my two buddies, right? We're out there, and we look up, and we see this formation of bombers coming our way. Then all of a sudden, we see the Bombay doors open up. We think, "Oh fuck, they're gonna, they're gonna bomb our ass!" Right? So we start hauling, running, right, back to the camp to tell our people, right? Hey, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna bomb us, right? And then all of a sudden, they start dropping leaflets. We saw leaflets coming down. So we grabbed the leaflets and said, Japan has surrendered. Okay. Right? We come running back. And, of course, some of the old-timers, nah, American propaganda. No way, right? But, yeah, that's how we were. got the announcement that uh, Japan had surrendered. Did they bust you all back to L.A.? Well, you know, the, uh, the Supreme Court declared the Constitution. Un the camps were unconstitutional. Yeah, they never said nothing about the incarceration. Right? They left that alone. But uh, the camps, they said, it was unconstitutional to hold us without due cause. Right? And we, we were never tried or nothing, no process, right? We just rounded up, put in camp. So you're talking about the Korematsu case where initially it was upheld by the Supreme Court that the camps were constitutional. And for listeners, if you don't know, it was only in 2018 that this finally got overturned and only because new Supreme Court Justice, Justice Sonia Sotomayor had brought it up in her dissent against Donald Trump's travel ban. But otherwise, this would have just stayed the way it was. In the 80s, this was overturned, but only 
overturned in the federal court after they found evidence to show that the Justice Department overstated the threat posed by Japanese Americans. And I think later on in the, the late 80s, the U.S. government conceded that the relocation was based on racial bias. And this is why in the 90s, Bill Clinton gave Fred Korematsu the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But Fred Korematsu never lived to see the Supreme Court overturn their decision and make the internment camps, the American internment camps, unconstitutional, period, full stop. But then again, we still have internment camps at the border, so shows you how much teeth that has. But you were making a point about incarceration. So what's the difference between being put into camp and incarceration? Well, not not, actually no difference. I mean, it's just a different way of describing it. So you're talking about search and seizure without probable cause and also the ability to detain you or, as you put it, incarcerate you without due process for an indefinite amount of time, which we still see. Yeah, the the rounding up. Yeah, no. That was okay. That's constitutional. (laughs) Well, it is now, you know, because it's okay. The Patriot Act has all of that shit in there. Oh, that's legal. So we actually, we live under a state of fascism without the nailed glove, right? All the laws are in place. People don't realize how powerful the Patriot Act was. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. And that's what I was talking about earlier about probable cause and being able to detain someone. We used to have protection under the Fourth Amendment, but the Patriot Act has permanently changed that. And also even with the Japanese internment camps, how that was overturned and deemed unconstitutional. There's so many loopholes. So what I mentioned earlier with the internment camps at the border, those are considered detention camps. So it goes through a different legal loophole and that doesn't count and that's not covered under that ruling. And to your point, the Patriot Act bypasses a lot of our other constitutional protections. So there's a lot of ways to dismantle the Constitution without actually having to directly dismantle the Constitution. Yes, that's a stone act of fascism. Surveillance, no more privacy. The only reason they crowd you and round you up is to see where you're at, and they know where you are at all times. If they know where you are at all times anyway, then they no longer need to corral you. Then that means that the whole thing is the prison, right? right. Yep, yep, yep. So that that's exactly what's going on, man. Is that... And then, you know, they can pick you up and hold you. How long? Uh, three, four days a week, 10 days? It's indefinite now, right? If they can, if they can put a, a charge on your ass, they can hold you without nothing or something like uh, three to five days or something like that. Then if they put a charge on you, they can hold you indefinitely. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of famous cases, especially in New York, where they held people. One famous case, Khalif Browder. He was held at the Rikers Island Jail for about three years without a trial for supposedly stealing a backpack. And two of those years were in solitary confinement without trial, mind you. So there's this like middle ground where you're not imprisoned, you haven't had trial, and you're just stuck in jail. And then there's other famous cases like the whistleblowers who blew the whistle on illegal government surveillance of its citizens, like reality winner. Chelsea Manning, 
also held and detained indefinitely without trial. This is why Eric Snowden will never come back to this country because he knows what's permissible under the law better than anybody else. But there's a lot of other cases that aren't as famous, especially for people of color who are just held in jail indefinitely without trial. And this is happening still. And this has happened historically. So sometimes we hear about certain things like the detainment at the borders and think, how can this happen? But then the legal framework and the legal systems for this to happen have already been in place for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that uh, think that uh, fascism has to look like, uh, you know, Gestapo not kicking your door down and shit like that. But they do that. It's because of Hollywood, right? Hollywood exists in the U.S. So everything we know about what evil or bad or fascism is supposed to look like, we learn from Hollywood. And Hollywood only shows you what foreign fascism looks like, right? It doesn't show you what it would look like here. It only shows you, oh, they're speaking German or some other language. So first of all, then brainwashed to believe it would never happen here. And secondly, we don't know how to recognize it because it's always portrayed as a foreign type of thing. And then you read about cases where the cops kicking places, doors down and stuff like that, and it's the wrong door and stuff like that, and nothing happens, right? And uh, how is that rationalized? Yeah. Fascism, yeah. right? That's the only way that you could uh, rationalize it. But, you know, that's, that's what we have. If you study the history from a movement perspective, then that's that that's the way it's got to go, right? I mean, uh, it, it's you have bourgeois democracy, liberal democracy, going so far. Then you have reaction going in, and you have just neoliberalism, which is laissez-faire, monopoly capitalism today, yeah. right? And they're doing whatever they want, and and people start to more and more react, yeah. right? And then they're going to need more and more constraints on the people and stuff like that. So the logical move under bourgeois capitalism is fascism, right? In the end, right, they need a, a, a authoritarian state to control people. This is the end of part one of my conversation with Mo Nishida. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Until next time, goodbye.